Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. You know, by nature, we are people who are restless. We are people who are need, need, in need of being trained to be patient. Uh, we need to learn how to wait well. A story is told by C.H. Spurgeon in his book, Lectures, uh, to my students, uh, he shares a s- story that makes that point. He says, a young man desired to go to India as a missionary in connection with the London Missionary Society. And there was a gentleman by the name Mr. Wilkes who was appointed to consider this young man's fitness for such a post. Uh, so he wrote to this young man and told him to, and called him at 6 o'clock the next morning for an interview. Now, this young man lived many miles off, but he was at the house at 6 o'clock on time, very punctually. Uh, Mr. Wilkes did not, however, he says, enter the room till hours later. He kept this gentleman waiting. And so the young man waited wonderingly but patiently. And at last, Mr. Wilkes arrived and addressed this young man, this candidate, in his usual nasal tones. Well, young man, so you want to be a missionary? Yes, sir. Uh, Do do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, I I do love the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you have any education? Uh, Yes, sir, a a little. Well, now, let me ask you a question. If you have had some education, can you spell the word cat? Can you spell cat? The young man looked a little confused and hardly knew how to answer such a preposterous question. And so his mind evidently halted, he says, between indignation and submission. But in a moment, he replied steadily, C-A-T, cat. Very good, said Mr. Wilkes. Now, can you spell dog? And so this young man was was stunned for a moment, but then he replied, D-O-G, dog. Well, that is right. I see you will do well in your spelling, he said. And now for your mathematics or arithmetic, How much is two times two? Uh, The young man was very patient and he gave the right reply and then he was dismissed. Uh, Mr. Wilkes Spurgeon goes on to share, gave his report to the committee meeting that evening. He said, I cordially recommend this young man. His testimony and character I have duly examined. I tried his self-denial and he was up in the morning to come and meet me for an interview. I tried his patience by keeping him waiting. I tried his humility and his temper by insulting his intelligence. He will do just fine on the mission field. Waiting. Waiting. You know, in a natural state, it's not something we relish or cherish. It's not something we look forward to. Yet it is an effective instrument that God so frequently uses to accomplish his plans and purposes in our lives, waiting. The text that we come to today is not so much about waiting itself as it is about the outcome of waiting on the Lord's timing. Uh, We come to the end result of waiting on the Lord. In the seven verses that we will study together tonight, I want uh, to draw one principle from this text and two responses to that principle. One principle, and then two responses to that principle from the text. I've titled our lesson for tonight, The Promise Delivered. The Promise 
delivered. Let's firstly take a look at the principle itself. Read with me first and the second verse of chapter 21 in Genesis. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, or he visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. And so Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. The first principle and the only one that I want to share from this text is this. Uh, The God of the Bible is a promise-giving and a promise-keeping God. The God of the Bible is a promise-giving and a promise-keeping Lord. Now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, uh, this shouldn't come as a new revelation to you. Uh, This should be something that you are already familiar with. This is something that you should already be well-versed with. Uh, This is a principle uh, that should be something that is not only foundational, but something that we need to keep reminding ourselves of and reminding ourselves of regularly. And every so often you come across a text that reminds you of this truth uh, that is so basic to the life of a believer. The God of the Bible, you see, is a promise-keeping God. He promises and he keeps his promise. Notice in the two verses the number of times uh, this truth is driven home. Uh, Notice verse 1, the Lord took note or visited Sarah as he had said. Uh, The Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore a son at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. We are repeatedly told that this God, the God of the Bible, is someone who gives a word, who gives a promise, and he keeps his word. He keeps his promise. He is, in other words, a trustworthy God. You can trust him. He's not like the Greek and Roman gods who were just magnified images of human beings. Uh, But he is the only God, and he is a God who is a trustworthy God. Now, where did he promise a son or about a son? It starts from a larger perspective, a larger image, and then it zones in on what he promises. So walk with me as we look at some texts about what he has actually promised. Go back to Genesis 12. And notice the first three verses. Uh, This is Lord, Yahweh, talking to Abram. He says to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, This is a more general kind of a promise, but it covers everything that the Lord intends to do. Go down to chapter 13, verse 14. Again, Yahweh speaking to Abram. The Lord said to Abram later, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Notice verse 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, 
so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Now we are talking a little bit more specific about how that blessing will come about. There will be descendants that will come out of Abraham. Go down to chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, he said to him, So shall your descendants be. I hear it's clear that whoever these descendants are, are a direct product of, from Abraham. We still don't know where Sarah is in this whole picture. Go down to chapter 17. Notice verse 1. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of multitude of nations. Still no Sarah in the picture. But go down to chapter 18. Notice verse 9. Then they, these divine visitors who came to visit Abraham and Sarah, then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now it becomes specific, becomes more pointed in its prophecy, doesn't it? And that brings us to these first two verses in chapter 21. Clearly then God had promised a son and that promise was fulfilled in the birth of a son that is recorded for us in these first two verses in chapter 21. Notice a couple of things in these two verses. The text says, then the Lord took note of Sarah. Uh, the Hebrew word there could be translated as, uh, for, the, for the phrase, took note as attended or visited Sarah. Uh, some translations have it as such. When the word is used in connection with God, that God visited someone, uh, that is, when God visits someone, there's a divine intervention that's taking place. Uh, the visit uh, many times could display an intention on his part to bring about destruction, or it could bring about a blessing. It indicates God's uh, specific and special attention uh, to an individual or a group of people or a matter uh, and such a visitation is always in respect to his people's destiny. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you a couple of examples. You don't have to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, uh, the text says, So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. The word translated concerned there 
is the same word that is translated here as took note. The Lord took note of his people and he did something about it. Uh, that is, he made plans, so he had plans to deliver them from the Egyptians. Uh, then there is visitation for destruction. Uh, the example for that would be 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2, where uh, Saul, the newly appointed king, is given a charge by Samuel to destroy someone. Uh, this is Saul, Samuel speaking to Saul. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. That word punish there is the same word translated here as took note of. God took note of the Amalekites in order to destroy them. The point is this. When the Lord visits or take note, takes note of something or someone, their destiny is changed forever. That was true of the Israelites in Egypt. Uh, that was true of the Amalekites in the days of Samuel and Saul. And it's true in Sarah's case in verse 1. He took note of Sarah and he did for Sarah as he had promised. Now what did he do for Sarah? Uh, verse 2 gives us the result. Notice what he did for Sarah. What he did for Sarah resulted in her conceiving. And what, what does that mean? He opened the womb. He allowed a 90-year-old woman to conceive. He revived the ability to conceive. And he did that for a woman for whom, humanly speaking, it was impossible to conceive. Heard of any 90-year-old conceiving and giving birth as a result of a promise from God? Verse 2 tells us what happened. A period of nine months then is covered in just two words. She conceived and she bore a son. You know, this is a, this is a woman who waited to be a mother, waited to conceive and bear a child, uh, a major portion of her life. Remember, she is 90 right now. And um, for almost 75 years of her life, she waited to be a mother. Can you imagine the reality of her daily life? You know, to be a mother is something she may have longed for as soon as she was ready to be married or as soon as she was married to Abraham. Uh, surely, she saw her friends and her relatives get married and conceive and have children and grandchildren and perhaps even great-grandchildren. But she didn't even have a child. Surely she may have seen even those who served them as servants and, and slaves, her slaves conceiving and bearing children, and she was still without a child. Now Abraham, we know, was the leader. He was the patriarch. He was the leader of the group, and so his position was a very visible position. And so Sarah's barrenness was quite exposed out there for everyone to see. You know, his name which didn't help Sarah at all, meant exalted father or father of a multitude. Uh, it did not help either. But the reality on the ground was different from what his name meant. He did not have a child, although he was called a father of multitudes. You know, for a time they thought, as we studied together Genesis 16, uh, for a time they thought that perhaps God meant for a child to come from Abraham, but not from Sarah. And so in Genesis 16, Sarah gave her Egyptian maid to Abraham, and out of that union came Ishmael, an event which God was not pleased with. The text does not tell us that, but considering that not a word from God is spoken in that chapter, it is fair to assume that the thing that Abraham had done 
had displeased the Lord. Genesis 16. After all of that, God continued to remind Abraham about his promise. And those, as we have read together, those promises kept getting specific and specific and more specific until in chapter 18 we are told it's going to be your seed, Abraham, and it's going to come through Sarah. And now in Genesis 21, we are told that she did conceive and she did bear a son. And just to highlight the impossibility of that situation from a human perspective, we are reminded in the middle of verse 2 that this happened to Abraham in his old age. Now how old was he? Verse 5 actually tells us that he was 100 years old. There's no reference to Sarah's age here, perhaps Uh, for whatever reason, but we know from other texts that she was 90 years old. I want us to notice two things about this promise-keeping God. Uh, The first thing to notice is that God's promises are always full and perfect in their detail. That's something that we've already observed so far. But secondly, God's promises are perfect in their timing. Notice that little phrase in verse 2, at the appointed time. Uh, This is to say just at the right time. But right time according to who? According to God. See, God does everything he does according to his appointed time. And his time is always right. Oh, it may not match your timeline or my timeline. It may not match what we have placed as our expectations But we can be assured from his word that he is doing all things according to his perfect time. Why does God do this? Well, we're not privy to all that he plans and how he plans and why he does what he does. But we are privy to his character and there we find that he is a trustworthy God. He has his reasons. We do not need to know those reasons. We just need to trust his character. There are things that he's doing behind the scenes uh, that you and I have no idea or no clue about. F.B. Meyer, in his book on Abraham, he writes this, God has his set time. It's not for us to know them. Indeed, we cannot know them. We must wait for them. If God had told Abraham in Haran that he must wait all those years, uh, 25 at least to be specific, until he pressed the promised child to his bosom, if he had known that at that time, his heart would have failed him. So in, a gracious, gracious, so in gracious love, the length of the very years was hidden. And only as they were nearly spent, and there were only a few more one, months to wait, God told him, according to the time of life, Sarah will have a son. If God told you, he then applies it to each one of us. He says, God, if God told you on the front end how long you would wait to find the fulfillment of your desire or pleasure or dream, you'd lose heart. You'd grow weary in well-doing, and so would I. But he doesn't. He just says to you and to me, wait, I keep my word. I'm in no hurry. And in the process of time, I'm developing you to be ready For the promise. What a wonderful thing it is to know that God always does everything according to His timing. Uh, More specifically for our group here, I don't know when each one of you, if the Lord has placed this on your heart, that you will get married. I don't know that. But we do know that this God that we believe in is a trustworthy God. 
he will do exactly at the time that he has planned and purpose to do. How does this apply to us as a group, as followers of, of Christ? What are the promises that God has promised to you and to me? I'm going to share a list with you, but this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, this is just a representative kind of a list, and I hope that is encouraging to you as we go through this list. What are some promises that God has made to you as his child? Well, first of all, salvation. Salvation to all who repent and believe in him. If you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're not a believer, God promises you salvation. God promises you that you will be saved. What does he promise specifically for the believer, though? Well, first of all, God promises every spiritual blessing for us in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 3. He promises us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. What else does he promise us? God promises us that all things will work together for good. When we know, Paul writes, that God causes all things to work together to good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. If you're a child of God going through difficult times, what a comforting promise this is. That everything that is taking place in our life, not just everything will work out in the end. No, God is in full control and he is causing all things to work together for good. And not only that, there, he promises us his presence. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. Uh, what does the word Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. God with us. God promises us his presence. God promises us comfort in, in the midst of our trials. Uh, God promises to finish the work that he has begun in us. That he will not stop until he has completed his plans and purposes through us. Not only that, God promises us to supply all our needs in Christ Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you. Not only that, he promises us, promises us rest, doesn't he? In the Lord Jesus Christ. He says... Come to me, all who are weary and weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises us rest. He promises us to hold us securely. In John 10, 28. Uh, and I give you eternal life, he says to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Amazing. And finally, he promises to return to us. He says to his disciples and to us in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. What wonderful promises these are. The God of the Bible is a promise giving and a promise-keeping God. He is, and he alone is, worthy of our trust. How did Abraham and Sarah respond to this promise-keeping God? And what does that imply for us? I mentioned to you that we will look at one principle and two responses. Notice the first 
response, verse 3 and verse 4. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him to do. Both these verses are a direct result, a response of God's instruction and his command to Abraham. The first one, for example, the fact that he will have a son who will be called Isaac is mentioned in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, 16 to 19, it says, I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. You will have a son, and I want you to call him Isaac. Also in Genesis 17, earlier in a couple of verses, earlier than that in chapter 17, verse 10, it says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. What is Abraham doing How does he respond to this promise-keeping God? Well, he responds with obedience, doesn't he? The obedience on Abraham's part was a direct response to the command from God. What does he do when he comes across a God who is a promise-keeping God? He obeys him. Uh, Notice the emphasis in the text on the fact that it was his son. Not someone else's son. It was a son that Sarah bore him and not a son of a slave or or someone else. But why repeat the same thing? Why repeat those two things again? You see, to drive home the point, the important point, the fact that the promise was to Abraham and to his descendants and it was important that it was through Abraham and the woman that he was married to, that the seed, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. So in other words, it was a fulfillment of a promise. And so the text repeatedly highlights for us that this was Abraham's son, and that this was a son that Sarah bore for him. The name Isaac, as we looked at last time when we were in Genesis 17, it means laughter, or he laughs. When God had told Abraham that he will give Abraham a son through her, he fell on his face, and what did we just read? He laughed. Every time then he called his son, he will be reminded of his response to the Lord. You know, just imagine a circumstance. Hey, Isaac, can you bring me some water? And you can just imagine a flash in his mind. Remember the time that you laughed? Kind of, he's kind of stuck with this for the next 75 years because he's going to live for another 75 years. And every time he calls Isaac, he'll be reminded of the fact that he laughed when God told him that he will have a son. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? And then what does he do? He circumcised Isaac 
circumcises Isaac when he was eight days old. Uh, this, by the way, is the first male child in Abraham's house to be circumcised on the day that is mentioned in the text, that is eight days. Uh, this was, uh, again, an obedience to the Lord's command. This was a sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. But what do these two actions show about Abraham? It shows to us that he was obedient. Uh, we see then a growth in him, don't we? Uh, we see him maturing in his faith. And that is what God deserves from us, our full obedience. Without hesitation, without delay, without questioning, without doubting his intentions, uh, without excusing, without complaining. No, just immediate obedience. If you're a child of God, it should be your joy, my joy to obey such a God. Uh, true faith always works. It delights in obeying God. Works or obedience does not save us. We have we've learned that, we have known that, but it is God who saves us by his grace. We are saved for good works. And that truth is clearly explained and brought out in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. Uh, perhaps you've memorized these verses. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, our obedience, our obedience is an evidence of a result of our salvation. It does not save us, it shows that we are saved. I cannot understand why people would have such an issue with works after you are saved. It should be a joy to obey our Lord in these ways. We are going through the, the letter of John, his first letter in our, uh, in, in, our, in our worship service in the morning. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. No, they should be a joy. It should be a joy for us to obey our heavenly father. And again, John 14, 15, our Lord says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I cannot understand why do we want to make it more complicated than it is. Take God at his word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Lord, what are your commandments? Help me to understand and help me to obey you. What would God's evaluation of your life be in this area? Would you be considered an individual who takes on the name of a Christian, a follower of Christ, but wants nothing to do with Christ and his demands on your life? Do you find more joy coming to the church but not obeying the head of the church? Uh, do you find more joy in knowing about Christianity but have no interest in listening to and obeying the Christ of Christianity? Well, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian if you sin. And not only would that not be true, it would also be in violation of of the scriptures, First John, the same letter I quoted earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So I'm not saying that you will never sin, 
but you will develop a heart by God's grace to have an inclination towards honoring God. A trajectory that will show that you're becoming more mature day by day in Christ. But you know, many times we're quick to go in that direction, aren't we? Oh, we will say no one is perfect. Uh, We all sin. We are all human beings. We are quick to, to go in that direction. But what we should be quick to do when we sin is not to hide under a fallen human nature, but we should be quick to seek refuge in our Heavenly Father, where that is the only place we are safe. That the writer of Proverbs who says, Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. That's where we need to run instead of finding excuses not to obey our Savior and our Lord. You know, my prayer is, may God's evaluation of each one of us here would be that, that this man, this woman who is sitting here, this brother, this sister in Christ, he is obedient. She is obedient. That brings us to response number two. Notice verse five to verse seven. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Uh, This section begins with a reminder to the readers, and the reminder is this, verse 5. Abraham is 100 years old when he had a son. It would be an insurmountable challenge today in the 21st century, and it would have been an insurmountable challenge even in 2000 BC when this story took place. You see, what was normal back then was to get married as soon as you were able to produce or conceive children. Uh, This would have been early teens, say 14, 15 years old. Abraham is now 100 years old. It is now more than 85 years that Abraham has been in that condition. And the text highlights the seeming impossibility of the situation. But you see, what is impossible with man or men is possible with God. This was also a direct response to the question that Abraham asks in uh, in Genesis 17, remember the text that we just read, Genesis 17, 17, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Answer, yes. Yes. You see, Abraham had already received his answer because he knew that Sarah was, going to con- was conceiving and that she was going to bear a child. But the readers receive an answer here in this text. Notice verse Five, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. What seems like a challenge from a man's perspective is not a big deal for this great God that we all believe in. Uh, This seeming challenge and impossibility of a situation helps us really understand Sarah's response to this promise-keeping God in verse 6 and 7. And in what she says, you can almost sense a delight and elation Uh, You can sense a certain liveliness in her response. Uh, In in its first reading, you might sense, what is Sarah talking about here? Verse 6 makes immediate sense as we read it. Verse verse 7, in its first reading, doesn't make much sense at all. And unless you continue to read it and understand the context, what you're seeing is a woman rejoicing in the fact that she has borne a son. Now she is a mother. There's a festive 
festiveness to this occasion here. Now, if, you've already, if you haven't already watched a mother with a little child, a baby that is just a few days old, then it's an interesting scenario. For those who have watched already, it's not difficult to visualize the scene. A new mother with a newborn child, she's interacting with this newborn. The newborn, of course, has no clue what the mother is saying. Uh, the baby has just a sense that whoever this is that is talking to me, it feels like I know this voice and I've heard it for some time. Those of you who are moms know exactly what I'm, what I'm sharing. And so Sarah, imagine with me, takes Isaac and she places him either in her arms or on her lap and says, God, in verse 6, God has made me laugh. He has made laughter for me, in other words. He has brought joy in my life and in my heart. Imagine he, she, she's continuing to talk to Isaac. When I first heard that I would bear a child, Isaac, I, I, I laughed. I laughed because I did not believe what the divine visitor was saying to me. How can I, as an 89-year-old, bear a child, Isaac, let alone conceive? That, at that time, in, verse seven, in chapter 17 and chapter 18 specifically, was a laughter of disbelief. I did not believe because it sounded too good to be true, Isaac. But this laughter that Sarah has here, this laughter is a laughter of joy, Isaac. It's joy because by opening my womb, by helping me conceive, by giving me a son, God has removed my shame. I'm no longer the barren wife of a husband who is a father of many nations. I am now a mother of his children. And God has removed my shame. Not only has he removed my shame, Isaac, he has filled me with joy. You know, the last sentence in chapter uh, 21, verse 7, it says, it says this. God has made laughter for me, Isaac, and everyone who hears will Isaac with me. This is a play on words uh, to bring home the point uh, that this, what Sarah is describing here, is full of joy and delight and festivity. And then you can imagine looking, her looking into Isaac's eyes and saying to him in verse 7, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? James Boyce, a pastor who passed away a number of years back, uh, from uh, Pennsylvania. In his commentary here, he imagines Sarah squeezing Isaac's cheeks so hard that he cries with delight, and then she covers him with kisses and says, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And then she laughs again. Not difficult to imagine, is it? As you think of a 90-year-old mother cooing and coddling with, with her son. As you read those two verses, it's difficult to actually imagine pain or sorrow in these three verses. Here is joy displayed of a couple that have just become new parents. Uh, this is the delight of a new parent. Abraham and Sarah have moved from hopeless despair, you know, waiting 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60, 70, 80 years for children. They have moved from hopeless despair to joyous praise. Isaac's birth is the most visible fulfillment of God's promises. And not only that, it's also the most central of the promises that God has given. Because on this promise, 
and its fulfillment depend the rest of the promises, uh, the nation, the descendants, the blessings that will follow. Such a crucial and important promise has come to its fulfillment. Here then is joy expressed in response to God's fulfilling his promise. Kent Hughes in his commentary writes, there was laughter everywhere. The old man and his wife laughed and they continued to laugh as they held tiny laughter in their arms. Baby Isaac cooed and laughed. The entire camp chuckled out loud. Heaven smiled. Abraham had laughed, Sarah had laughed, but in the birth of Isaac, Hughes writes, God would have the last laugh. Beautiful in writing. In this chapter, we, we have seen along with Abraham and Sarah then a God who had been faithful to his word, down to every jot and tittle. The God of the Bible is a promise-giving and a promise-keeping God. Isn't it our Lord who says in the Sermon on the Mount, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. We believe in a God who makes promises, who gives promises, and who keeps his promises. As we conclude our time together, I want to draw our time uh, to close by drawing two comparisons. And by drawing those comparisons, I want us to apply the text to ourselves. Uh, what is the first comparison? Well, the first comparison is the birth of Isaac and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or what can we learn as we compare those two births? You know, there was a delay uh, between the promises made and the promises fulfilled in both the births. Uh, in Isaac's case, it would have been at least 25 years from when the promise was made and when Isaac was born. In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would have been at least 4,000 years. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first promise is given about the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And that is fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ is born, almost 2,000 years back. In the case of Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ, both mothers, Sarah and Mary, initially expressed surprise. In Sarah's case, she even disbelieved when the birth was announced, and then it was supported by, assured by God and his omnipotence. In both cases, that was true. Both Isaac and Jesus were named before they were born, and their names were symbolic. We've learned about Isaac, it means laughter or he laughs, and Jesus in his name, it means God saves. Both of them were named before they were born. And both births occurred exactly at the time that God had appointed. In Genesis chapter 21 verse 2, we read the fact that at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him, Isaac is born. We know that our Lord's birth was also something that took place just at the time that God had appointed it. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 it says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Also both required, both, both births required a miracle. In Sarah's case, the womb needed to be revived. And in Mary's case, the conception took place even though she was a virgin. But both births also followed by joy and, and laughter. But you know, but as important and significant as Isaac's birth was, and as much as there are similarities between Isaac's birth 
and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, in reality, there is really no comparison. There's no comparison because of who they were. While Isaac, at the end of the day, was a sinful human being. But Jesus was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was perfect and who was without sin. At Jesus' birth and his death brought life. Jesus, you see, died for Isaac. He came to bring life, eternal life, for Isaac, and he has come to do the same for you and for me. But there is another comparison that I want to draw as we close. It's the fact that the birth of Isaac and the spiritual birth of the child of God. You see, there is also some comparison there. And as, as we listen to it, I hope that we are able to draw lessons from it. Just as Isaac's birth was, humanly speaking, an impossibility, our spiritual birth, too, was, humanly speaking, an impossibility. You see, we were dead in our trespasses. And since, spiritually speaking, we were dead people. It's impossible for dead men to become children of God. And then the Spirit gave us life. He had to do His work of regeneration for us. And then we are in a position to call on the name of the Lord. Also, both Isaac, his physical birth and our spiritual birth prove that God had to bring this about. Uh, this had to be God's work. Our salvation is not our work, but it is God's work. And on the basis of the death of His Son on the cross of Calvary, He accomplished your salvation, and he did mine. Not only that, both Isaac's birth and our spiritual birth tell us that God promises something. He always then fulfills that promise. Now, the God of the Bible is a promise-giving and a promise-keeping God. When he says in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, he always keeps that promise. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. But lastly, and most importantly, both Isaac's physical birth and our spiritual birth ultimately bring God the glory and the praise that he alone deserves. As you look at this event of the birth of Isaac, don't divorce it from what the Lord has done for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. It reminds us of the fact that his love for you and for me. And when you repent and believe in him, he will save you. Not only that, he will give us, as we've looked at other promises, that he will give us everything that we need for life and for godliness. And that Paul who writes, if God has given us Christ, all, how will he not also give along with him everything that we need to live our spiritual lives? Trust him. Rejoice in him. Grow in him. Learn to love him. Let me conclude our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these reminders from your word. Such a basic and simple truth it is, but it's so profound and so life-changing that we have a God. There is only one God. And there's only one mediator in Christ Jesus. And that he is a God who gives promises and he keeps those promises. We can trust him. He is a trustworthy God. Lord, we love you. And help us that these truths will impact how we live on a daily basis. Help us to honor you in everything that we do. And help us to see you be exalted through small and big decisions of our life. We come into our time.
in our small groups into your hands. We pray that you would be exalted through it all. In Jesus' precious and worthy name I pray. Amen.